I'm going to ask that you take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We are focusing on verses 1, 2, and 3. Let us read these verses before we get into our study tonight. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. You have two handouts. The first handout that I'd like to call to your attention is what is known as the Sarajevo Agada. Sarajevo Agada. Now the Haggadah is the script that the Jewish families would follow during the time of Passover. The Seder meal. What they would do is that they would rehearse their history. And they would also incorporate in their history the history of creation. Now looking at the handout that you have, you will note that in their presentation of creation, there are eight days and not seven. For when you think about the seven days of creation, the Jews understood that there was something that actually preceded what we commonly refer to as the seven days of creation. And that was the time of chaos. And so in your first panel, now remember, we go from left to right, they go right to left. So in your first panel, and you ought to be able to see this better in your handout, in the first panel, that was entitled Chaos. Now the Jewish tradition was very, very well known throughout the ancient world. If you look at the various creation stories, the Samaritans, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, you'll find that creation always started with chaos. And so the Jews, they typified this in the eight different frames in their Haggadah. So they would start with chaos and they would end not on the seventh day per se, they would end on the eighth day. Now, if you know anything about Jewish numerology, you'll find that eight is a very significant number. 
Eight is the name or number for new beginning. New beginning. Matter of fact, to be honest with you, as we are about to celebrate Resurrection Sunday, Jesus actually rose again on the eighth day, the day of new beginning. And some years ago, I covered that in great detail. I'll try to do that again as we get into uh, a further study of God's Word, getting closer to Resurrection Sunday. But the thing is, we see the recognition of chaos preceding what we would normally call the creation week. And I hope to be able to show you that we're not really looking at the days of creation, but rather the days of recreation. And that is what I want to begin to help you understand tonight. Now, when you move from those eight frames, again, another rendition of the eight frames of the Haggadah are presented here. Note, if you will, at the top, we have the original creation. From the original creation, we have chaos. Chaos. So in other words, what we would have is Genesis 1-1, the original creation. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And then in Genesis 1-2, you have a condition of chaos and then from that condition of chaos, you have a work of renewal resulting in the seventh day, the day of rest. Two things have to take place. Number one, you have to reform that which has lost its form. And number two, you have to fill that which has been emptied. And so you have two examples, two examples of this same concept of beginning with chaos and after chaos being able to go back and to bring to a reordering of the original creation. John MacArthur in his book, he breaks down Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, that is time. God that is force, created, that is action, the heavens, that is space, and the earth, that is matter. What is most interesting is his statement concerning this verse. In the first verse of the Bible, God laid out plainly what scientists and philosophers, it took them to the 19th century to be able to catalog and classify. Now the Bible is not a science book, but when the Bible speaks of science, it is correct. The Bible is infallible in every area that it addresses. So I like that breakdown. Time Force, action, space, and matter. Now, let's go back 
And let's begin looking at the actual wording, the actual wording that is presented to us. Now, in our first session, we talked about the fact that we study the Bible from one or two, one of two perspectives. We study it theologically, or we study it exegetically. Now, when we talk about studying the Bible theologically, we're talking about basically what we have been taught throughout the circles that we align ourselves with. In our case, when we talk about theology, a lot of people would refer to it more so Baptist theology instead of Bible theology. You have to be very careful when you try to approach the Bible purely from a theological point of view. You are approaching the Bible already with certain preconceived notions and prejudice. In other words, if you're raised up Baptist, there's a certain way that you will handle the scriptures. If you're raised up Methodist, if you're raised up Catholic, there's always a, a, a denominational theological tradition that is presented. Be careful of that. When I stand before you, I do not seek to present to you Baptist theology. I'm not interested in what Baptists believe. Even though I am a Baptist preacher, I'm not interested in what Baptists believe per se. My primary goal is this. What does the Bible say? I'm more interested in Bible theology than I am Baptist theology. See, the study of theology is the study of God through the understanding of man. You have to be careful. This is why we have so many different denominations. That's why we have so many different theological moorings because we don't always see something the same way. And so you're going to be safe by always asking the question, well, what does the Bible say? Now, the only way that you can answer the question, what does the Bible say, is that you've got to relinquish as your primary perspective theology, and you have to embrace the study exegetically. Now, when we talk about handling the scriptures exegetically, we're talking about going to the passage, reading the passage, and then looking at the words and understanding the meaning of the words. Once you have the proper definition to the word, then you want to look and you want to ask certain questions. Number one, who is writing? Number two, to whom is this message being given? And number three, what is the historical context? So in the reading of God's word, you have to go to it asking the adequate questions 
in order to come away with the proper interpretation. If you will stay in the Bible long enough, you will learn that the Bible is its best commentary on itself. You'll learn that God really does have the ability to say what he means and then mean what he says. Remember, we communicate in words. Words have meaning. And when you're studying the Bible, you have to make sure that you understand the word as it is written in its original language. Again, as I may mention last Sunday night, English is probably the worst language known to man. It is the most ambiguous language. But when you get into the languages of Hebrew and Greek, it's different. They are a very specific and precise language. And so when you begin to understand the meanings of these words, then you can come away with a proper understanding and the ability to have a proper interpretation. And so as we look at this passage of Scripture, I don't want us to look at it theologically. In other words, the way that we've always heard it. Let's look at it exegetically and let's see if by chance there's actually more, more than what we may have been taught or told. All right, now, let's look at verse 2. Verse 2. Note, if you will, verse 2. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now, we have to ask ourselves the question. When we come to verse 2, is verse 2 a part of God's creation or is it not a part of God's creation? Let me put it another way. We see that God owns what is said in verse 1. We see also that God owns what is said in verse 3. But note, if you will, God does not own or lay claim to verse 2. That's highly significant. Highly significant. See, in verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. What is this? This is a declaration a declaration that stands by itself. And this declaration that stands by itself points to one thing, absolute creation. Absolute creation. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. So there we have the very first verse of the Bible. God is making a declaration. He's not seeking to make an explanation. 
He is setting forth a declaration of fact. And what is that fact? That fact is God is responsible for what is. God is declaring himself creator of heaven and earth. So this is the first thing that we see God as he seeks to reveal himself to us. He wants us to know that he is the one who is responsible. He is the creator God. He is the creator of both heaven and earth. Period. End of matter. That's how it is. Now, if you have a problem with that, you're the problem. He's not. God just tells it like it is. He created it. The Hebrew word is barar. B-A-R-A. And what does that word mean? It means to bring something out of nothing. Something out of nothing. That is the primary definition of that English word, create. Now, there's another nuance to this word that you need to be aware of. Not only does the word barar mean to bring something out of nothing, but it means that whatever was brought out of nothing and became something, that that something came in a complete form. Now that has great sense into what we are looking at from this passage of Scripture. So God says, I have created something out of nothing. And that which I have created, I created in its completion. Now, looking at that exegetically, looking at it by looking at that word, God is telling us some very important things. He's telling us, number one, that He is the Creator God. Number two, He tells us that in his act of creation, he starts with absolutely nothing. And then number three, that which he brings into existence, he brings into existence in its completed form. Are you with me? He tells us that he's creator. He tells us what creation is, is to bring something out of nothing, and whatever that something is, it comes in its complete form. So that's the declaration of Genesis 1-1. Now we've got a problem when you look at Genesis 1-2. Because when you read the description of Genesis 1-2, you've got to ask yourself the question, how in the world can this something, which was created out of nothing by the creator God, how can it be complete when you have a picture of chaos? Look 
if you will, at verse 2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Now look, if you will, very carefully at that verse, and I want you to see the threefold condition that is described here in verse 2. Number one, the earth was desolate and waste. Desolate and waste. Note, if you will, and the earth was without form and void. It was desolate. It was waste. That's the first description. Description number two. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. The word deep, the Hebrew is the word abyss. Do we associate anything good with the abyss? Matter of fact, that is a word that is always used in the context of judgment. So darkness is upon the face of the deep. That is the second description. Description number one, the earth was desolate and wasteful. It is dark. And the third description is this. And the Spirit of God brooded upon the face of the waters. Brooded upon the face of the waters. Now we have to ask ourselves the question. If the Creator God created something out of nothing, and that something was complete at its creation, how do you explain what we're reading here in verse 2? Would God begin his work of creation with the creation of chaos? You see, he owns verse 1. He owns verse 3. But he doesn't own verse 2. And that's why when you look at your uh, panels and you look at the diagram that I showed to you earlier, you will find original creation goes into a condition of chaos, and from that condition of chaos, God has to step in and reorder, literally renew what had taken place. So, when you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, you see another Jewish parallel that I want to present to you tonight. And that is the Jewish parallel to baptism. To baptism. Now, I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about this, but baptism actually points to judgment. Whether you're looking at the Old Testament context or you're looking at it in the New Testament context. Baptism is a picture of judgment. Let me give you the New Testament context so you'll have a better understanding of what we're about to look at. When a person makes their profession of faith, their first step in the Christian life is the step of obedience. They need to be baptized. Now, what does baptism do? Baptism is a public witness to the relationship that that believing sinner has now with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So they go into the water and they go into the water. Submerged in the water. Then they are raised up from the water to walk in newness of life. What are they doing? They are demonstrating that they have followed the Lord in his death. That's why we put people under the water. Submerged under the water. Not just being in the water, but under the water. And when that baptismal candidate comes up, they're coming from death raised into life to walk in newness of life. Waters of baptism parallel the judgment of sin. Why did Jesus die and was buried? Would you not agree, my friend, that that is indeed judgment? What is he on the cross for? He's paying the price of our sin. He is experiencing what? The wrath of Almighty God. He goes into death. He dies. He is buried. And then he is resurrected. You realize you can't have a resurrection until you first have a death? A death? And so the Jews understood the concept of baptism and its parallel to sin, death, and judgment. And you and I, we need to understand the same thing when we see a person go through the waters of baptism. They have passed from death unto life. From darkness into light. In other words, under the water, they are sinners. The judgment of God. But when they come up out of the water, what is it? It's new life. It's resurrection. They're washed. They're regenerated. They're renewed. They're made alive. And so the Jews understood the parallel of the baptism figure. And that's exactly what we have here in Genesis 1-2. Note if you will, number one, the earth is covered in water. The earth is literally submerged in water. Now, being submerged in water, the second thing is this, earth now is shrouded in darkness. So, earth is covered in water, and being covered in water, it is shrouded in darkness. Now what is that? Is that a picture? A blessing? No, that's a picture of curse. God's not going to begin his work with cursing. He's going to begin his work with blessing. Remember the work of Jesus. He undoes the curse of sin. So the water is covering the earth. And 
The earth is now shrouded in darkness. But there's a third thing that we see. The earth is being hovered over by the Spirit of God. The earth is being hovered over by the Spirit of God. Now, I want you to turn very quickly over to Psalm 104. Psalm 104. This is a creation psalm. And if you begin reading in verse 1, you can see that the psalmist has creation in view. But we're going to look at this and kind of see a different picture than what maybe you've seen before. He begins in verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty, who covers thyself with light as with a garment, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, who lays the beams of his chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot, who walks upon the wings of the wind, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers a flaming Fire, who laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be removed forever. Thou coverest it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled. Now we read that and we think immediately of what event? The flood. The flood. Hang with me, I'm going to show you something tonight. You would think that this is what he's talking about. He's talking about a work of God in relationship to a post-flood environment. Now, look, if you will, verse 30. Verse 30. Thou sendest forth thy spirit. They are created. And thou renewest the face of the earth. Now I want you to look at that word. Renewest. Renewest. You don't have to be a Hebrew scholar. But if you would take the time to look up that word. You would find that that word renewest means to rebuild or repair. To rebuild or to repair. Note, if you will, the picture that we see in Genesis 1-2. The earth is covered in water. The earth is shrouded in darkness. But the earth is being hovered over by the Spirit of God. And verse 30 tells us, Thou sent forth thy Spirit. They are created. And thou renewest you're rebuilding repairing what the face of the earth now look if you will into the new testament second peter chapter three second peter chapter three now for those who would seemingly connect what we have seen in psalm 104 with the flood I want to show you that 
Psalm 104, though it could be applied to the flood, that is not its primary presentation. Because something else happened pre-flood with the earth and with water. Look, if you will, 2 Peter chapter 3, and let us begin in verse 5. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Note, if you will, the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Verse 6. Whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. For the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved under fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, we can see very clearly that what Peter has in mind is the subject of judgment. He uses the word perish in verse 6. And he uses the word judgment in verse 7. Now, because we do not have a tendency to really pay attention to what we're reading, we make assumptions based upon associated things that we know about God's word. There are those, when they read these verses, they immediately think that he is talking about the judgment of the flood. He is, but he's talking more. He's talking more. Now I want to mark out something. In verse 5, 6, and 7, what we find are three stages of the earth. Verse 5, verse 6, verse 7. Three stages. And each one of these stages point us to the element of judgment. Stage 1 in verse 5 is revealed to us by two words. These two words are of old. He's talking about the heaven and the earth of old. Of old. Predating the flood of Noah. Look, if you will, verse 6. Stage 2. The world that then was. Those two words, then was. Stage 1, of old. Stage 2, then was, and then stage three in verse seven, are now. So I want you to see the complete picture of what Peter is pointing us to. He's pointing us to a threefold judgment, a judgment that involved the earth of old. A judgment that involved the earth that was, that was Noah and the flood, and then the earth that is now, that is presently being reserved for judgment. Being reserved for judgment. And so note, if you will, when you look at this passage of Scripture, there are three features. You have a judgment against an evil world resulting in the purging of sin leading to the repopulation of the earth. 
And that is the common thread in all three of these judgments. The judgment of the earth of old, the judgment of the earth that was, and the judgment of the world that is and shall be in the future. So he is pointing out a threefold judgment. A judgment by water twice. And a judgment by fire once. Let me say that again. Peter does not point out two judgments. He points out three judgments. The heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water. That's Genesis 1-2. The earth that then was being overflowed with water perished. That's Genesis 7, the flood. And then he talks about the heavens and the earth which are now reserved unto fire. That's the future day of the Lord. Three judgments. And two of these judgments were with water. The earth was overflowed with water. The world was under water. Consumed by water. And as a result, the earth being covered in water, it is shrouded in darkness. And now we meet up with the fact that God sends forth his spirit to do what? To renew. To renew. Psalm 104, verse 30. What does it mean to renew? It means to rebuild or repair. Now we're going to learn what happened. And we'll see a much clearer picture. Hang with me. But I want you to see that Peter presents the earth in three stages. Stage one, at the forming of the earth. That's verse five. At the forming of the earth. Verse 6 is stage 2, at the flooding of the earth. At the flooding of the earth. And then verse 7, the future of the earth. Back, the story that relates to the forming of the earth. Remember, he's going to have to do two things. He's going to have to reform and refill. And in our next session, we're going to look at those days. Days of Formation, days of filling. Why does he have to form? Why does he have to fill? Because something happened that results in the earth being just like we read in Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void. In other words, it lost its form and it lost its fullness. Something happened. And God had to step in not to recreate the earth but to renew the earth. To bring it back to its form. To bring it back to its place of being filled or what we could say its fruitfulness. So what we have to do is we have to look at the scriptures and find out exactly what happened to make sense of this. And that is where we will pick up 
in our next presentation. All right, I saved a little time to give you an opportunity to maybe ask a question. Are you with me tonight? Is this starting to make better sense? Okay, is anybody out there listening to me at all? <laughs> the Peter passage is most interesting. You know what is interesting? And I'll throw this at you. How many of you have read from the Amplified Bible? Let me see your hands. Whenever I study the Old Testament, one of the best resources is the Amplified Bible. And what is interesting is I went to my Amplified Bible and I, I, I did this tonight. This is the first time I did this. Uh, this series has been put together months, months in advance. But I went to the Amplified Bible tonight and I looked at Psalm 104, verse 30, where it talks about sending forth the Spirit for the purpose of renewing the face of the earth. In the margin of the Amplified Bible, there were two Bible references. And when I saw it, I got chills. Bible reference number one, Genesis 1 2. Bible reference number two, 2 Peter 3 5. Again, when we hear something for the first time, having heard something said a certain way over many years, it's hard, it's hard to digest. That's why we go slowly, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little bit, there a little bit. Because I know that what I am presenting to you is something that was well known in the early century of the church. But like everything else, religion got in the way of the Bible. And I gave you last week the illustration. We ought not be celebrating Easter. We ought to be celebrating Passover. That is the biblical definition of what we are celebrating. Resurrection is a celebration of Passover. What is Passover? It's the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. What happened? The organized church got together, and because Passover would be associated with the Jews, we can't have anything in the Christian church that would associate with the Jews. So what do we do? We rename it. What do we do? We go to the most pagan traditions imaginable. Easter. So you need to be careful. You need to know the Bible. And you need to know some of your history. These things just don't happen all by themselves. There are reasons. There are reasons. And again, we live in a time where everybody wants to be politically correct. So, so, so the message has to be changed to make it more appealing to people. And so you talk about the blood. Oh, people don't like that. We've got to change it. And that's what's happening today. And the end result is people don't really know what the Bible truly says because what the Bible truly says is not being taught and being preached today. And then someone like me comes along and people look at me and say, wow, is he a heretic? No, all you've got to do is bring your Bible. Have you been able tonight to follow along with me in your Bibles? Okay, 
We've read together God's Word. All I've done, think about it. All I've done tonight is just point out the meanings of words. There's not a one of you who can't go home and do the exact same thing that I've done tonight. It takes some work, takes some time, takes some study, but you could do it. You could do it. All right, anybody have a question? Yes, Diane. Last time we taught this, you had referenced Isaiah 45, 18, and Ezekiel 28, 13. Mm -hmm. Are you going a different way with this? Or you want to no, I'll hit, I'll hit those, but I'm, I'm, laying, I'm laying more of a foundation this time than I did years yeah, ago. Why we do live broadcasts. And that's why we listen on Sunday morning, Sunday night, they're always recorded. They're always recorded. So if anyone wants to uh, get one of the uh, messages, uh, see June, and uh, she's the one who edits and, and puts everything together and makes those things available. And so that's what we do. But it's just like leaving right in the middle of a thriller. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll try to go a little faster, okay? I'll try to go a little faster. Yeah. Let, let me give you a little secret. Let me give you a little secret. Much of the pace that I use in teaching, I judge the pace based upon your facial expression. I can look at you and tell if you get it. I can look at you and tell if you don't get it. So if you don't get it, what do I do? See, that's why I go from side to side. I don't do this because I'm nervous. <laughs> I go from side to side because I want to see your faces. And if I see your faces, I can, I, I know whether I'm connecting. And if I see on your face a blank look, I know I've got, I've got to stay there a while. And, and I've got to say the same thing, but maybe in a different way, so I can make that connection. So the pace of, of what I do, to be honest with you, is predicated upon y'all, not me. <laughs> it's our fault. Well, no, it's not, it's not your fault. See, I, I'm here, I'm here for you. For you, if I present God's word, you walk away and, and, and you don't understand it, then I have not done my job. I've not done my job. What clarity? Are there any more creation songs other than local? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. The songs are full of, of It's interesting, Psalm 104, the mention of angels. When you go back to the oldest book of the Bible, Job. Job tells us at the time of the original creation, the angels are praising God as God is doing his thing. So that opens up a whole new vista because we've got a whole different world that's already in play before our world. And that's going to have great bearing on what we're going to see as we give a biblical explanation of what happened between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-3.
Again, going back, I cannot stress enough, when you look at that Hebrew word, create. To bring something out of nothing, and that that is brought is complete. Now you have an incomplete picture in verse 2. So common sense based just purely on the exegetical presentation of the one word shows us there's more here than meets the eye. <laughs> Wasn't it Jesus who actually created uh, based on the Father's plan? Um, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about the Colossians passage of Scripture. But actually creation is, is, is more attributed to the work of the Holy Spirit. But when you talk about creation, you have both the Holy Spirit and the Son of God in the work of recreation. I want to ask you a question. But I don't think you guys for a moment. <coughs> is not our salvation a recreation? Think about that. Is not our salvation a recreation? In other words, we have to give back something that was lost. That's right. Our salvation is God's means of bringing us back to where we should have been in the first place. In other words, what Adam did to us, God turned around and undid it in the work of his son. So in a very real way, you can look at salvation as a recreation. He has recreated me to my original state. Body, soul, and spirit. See, every person that enters this world, they enter with body and soul. What is the soul of man? It's the life of man. What constitutes physical death? When your soul leaves your body, guess what? You're physically dead. Okay? Now, when we talk about being born again, when we talk about the second death, this is where the spiritual dynamic comes into play. When God creates Adam, as I said this morning, he breathed into Adam the breath of lies. Plural. Not singular. How do I know that? Well, I know that because the Hebrew is plural. But I know that also by the statement that follows. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of lies. And Adam became, listen to this, a living soul. A living soul. What's the condition of our soul when we enter the world? Dead in trespassing sin, Ephesians 2, 1. See, we're born with a dead soul. Physically alive, spiritually dead. What is the great work of our Savior on our behalf? To give us spiritual life. In other words, to restore us. To our original design. Isn't it good to think about what he's done for us? All right, let's stand. <clears throat>
Thank you for being here tonight. With their heads bowed, our eyes closed. Again, tonight, the Lord has given us the opportunity to go beyond mere milk of the word and to chew on some meat. But that's how we grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Brother Gary, would you please dismiss us in a word of prayer? Brother Gary.